Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. And I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, we discussed the joint SpaceX-NASA launch that just happened a few hours ago, or two weeks ago, if you're going by our release schedule. And by the way, guys, thanks for restoring our faith in humanity. On the content circuit, we decide Shark Tank is not trash and neither is Back to the Future. And then Josh puts a security round into the decision on whether or not I should read The Terminal List by Jack Carr. I'm going to read it because you double tapped my curiosity, Josh. Movies, shows, and video games, podcast books, and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Yesterday was a pretty awesome day uh, for me. I made two skydives, my first jumps in eight years. And I think back in 2012, I only did one recurrency skydive since, uh, so, you know, that barely counts. So going back even more, I think my, like, the last time I was actually actively skydiving was like 2007, 2008. So 12 plus years, I am not going to talk about that today. We've already talked a lot about skydiving, uh, which is understandable. It did bring us together and it is fun to talk about with you, especially since you are a master in the sport or uh, a skydivologist. <laughs> That's what they call us. But um, I did want to mention it because... Not only am I stoked about it, I have a hilarious uh, skydiving content reference that my wife made. So Brie is not a contentologist like us. I would say she's like an appreciator of entertainment. Uh, amateur. An amateur, exactly. She, she's yeah. definitely never played a video game for like eight hours straight or... Oh man, consumed. that's every other day for me, buddy. Yeah. Or like polished off a couple of seasons of a show and couple couple days don't hold it against her but uh anyway so after skydiving yesterday we i ran a few errands got back to rifle gap state park and then we got our gigantic inflatable multi-person stand-up paddleboard out have you seen this thing Uh, i mean i don't know if i've seen yours i am familiar with the concept of them though we did some paddleboarding uh out in hawaii remember yeah, well, th- this it definitely wasn't like this. This is twelve feet long. They also make a fifteen foot one. We've gotten three people on our stand up paddleboard. I mean, it's huge. <laughs> oh, it's like a boat. It's it's really fun. It is a boat, basically. Uh, so we tried to avoid the weather. There's some afternoon thunderstorms. We ended up in some pretty choppy water. Maybe like I don't know. They're probably two foot rolling waves, but it definitely felt like they were high seas at the time. But anyway. Bree says, uh, she's kind of looking at me and she's like, you're really having a point break kind of day. (laughs) (laughs) Skydiving and then surfing these swells. And I... Surfing is the source. I didn't even know that she had seen that movie. I definitely haven't watched it with her. So I'm pretty stoked that she compared me to a iconic uh, Keanu Reeves character, especially since I just covered The Matrix on her last episode. So... Yeah, that, is that was quite the honor. I feel <laughs> yeah. like Point Break is probably part of 
everyone's movie lexicon now it's like it's pretty deeply entrenched into the psyche of the american movie going audience yeah you know it's hard to tell like um i think Bree's more like harry potter avatar like there's a nature documentaries planet earth blue planet but like point break is a you know I, I was just surprised, but it was a it it's was so a, good. It was a pretty pretty amazing reference, but um, I love that movie, man. It's great. We we'll probably have to cover it at some point. Oh, there are already some plans in the works for that. Ooh. What I love about that movie is that it is like a, it's like a, an action scene portfolio. It's like Catherine Bigelow scripted out all of the types of action scenes that she likes, you know, like car chases and foot chases and skydiving and shootouts and bank robberies and all these things. And then don't forget she surfing. created, don't forget surfing. I could never could, but it's, <laughs> it is the source. But um, it's like she scripted them all out and put them into a sequence that allowed her to wrap it all like in one package. What I think is weird about Point Break though is I never really considered it to be a skydiving movie, but I've met so many skydivers that said that they started skydiving because of Point Break. Like to me, it always seemed like a surfing movie. But then when I hear, you know, like people that I respect that have been in the sport for years, it's like, oh yeah, I saw it on Point Break. Like it really kind of made me reevaluate how important that skydiving scene in Point Break was. But congratulations on your skydiving get back in the sky man that is really awesome well in the uh, sky and on the water in the same day just like johnny utah (laughs) just like that yeah man from altitude to sea level (laughs) well uh, i guess you're probably at about eight thousand feet up there in the mountains uh, i think we're at i'm at six thousand yeah so not quite sea level yeah no um so anyway today after spending another morning on the water, which is amazing, um, we planned our return to land very specifically so we would not miss the first crewed SpaceX rocket, the first spacecraft launch to depart from the United States in almost a decade. Dude, today was awesome. And actually, before I forget... um, since I, we were just talking about skydiving too, didn't you see the launch? I was telling my neighbors who I watched the launch with that my buddy that I have a podcast with watched some kind of launch. I, I didn't know if it was a space shuttle or a satellite, but you were in a skydiving plane. You were like heading up in the evening. What Can you remind me that? I couldn't remember the details. Oh, yeah. So this was out in uh, California, the same place that the uh, exploding airplane Delta Tango was located but we uh, we were just uh, just east of Vandenberg Air Force Base where they launched a lot of satellites into space. And when they were going to launch them, you know that schedule was published and was ma- made to be public knowledge. So there was a satellite launch going up. I think it was like 10 p.m. one evening. And uh, we scheduled a skydive, a night jump, to coincide with the launch. And it was really awesome. I mean, like the drop zone, anytime this would happen, they would work out to have like, you know, a special event, send people up and be in the sky while this thing, you know, broke free of the atmosphere. So they had, I I believe it was a 10 mile radius that no aircraft could be within. So 
we were holding just outside of that 10 mile radius, like the, the very edge of the distance that we could safely be. And since the launches, you know, don't always go to schedule, we were just kind of circling around waiting. And then when we got the countdown for the launch, uh, the pilot turned in and started flying north. So he put the, uh, the door, which is on the left side of the aircraft facing west. And we basically all just scoot to the back of the plane, look out the door, and we had this perfect unobstructed view from 10,000 feet of the, the giant fireball on the ground. We saw the rocket booster lift up. It flew, you know, it maybe took 15, 20 seconds for it to pass, maybe, maybe about a minute for it to pass our altitude because it was slowly accelerating. But as it passed our altitude, 10,000 feet, man, it just started taking off like a rocket. that that phrase must mean something i guess but what was really interesting was did you hear it it too uh no i mean the the wind is pretty loud when the skydiving plane is open so that was kind of oh you had the door open but everyone was still yeah with the door open okay gotcha dude that is freaking awesome so it goes up and then what was really interesting is as it got to a certain altitude you know, I guess it's like as it starts to follow the curvature of the Earth, if you believe in that kind of thing, Flat we Earth. could see <laughs> we could see the uh, the rocket like kind of its trajectory bending back from our perspective, and it looked like it did like a forty five degree turn, but it was like I think it was it going up into orbit. You know, it's starting to right. starting to follow the Earth, and then we, you know, we were like all in total awe. And then the pilot turned in on jump run. We all jumped out, did this amazing night jump. The funniest thing, though, was we we had this riverbed that we would land in. There was like a, uh, I think you might have landed there, like this really soft sand riverbed. And we were landing there because it was like the biggest, easiest uh, landing area to hit at night. Yeah, and I, so I know what you're talking about. Yeah. After we land, the uh, the driver comes out with a van to pick us all up. And you're not supposed to drive down to the riverbed because it's like silt. But driver drives down like, hey, guys, here to pick you all up. We all hop in. And then immediately the van is stuck in just like eight inch deep river silt. And we spent like the next six hours trying to get this van unstuck. So it was a little anticlimactic after seeing one of the most amazing (laughs) visages of my life. But, you know, that that was a. That price was definitely worth paying. Like that was a once in a lifetime experience. You went from like, oh my God, humans are so brilliant to like, oh my God, <laughs> humans are so stupid. How could the how could the same species that put this satellite into orbit also drive this van down into river silt? <laughs> oh man. Well, I just <laughs> I thought it was so appropriate. Um I don't know. I'm glad. I'm glad that I remembered to ask you that because, uh, dude, watching it today uh, live, you know, I I I was going to miss it because I was driving back from the drop zone when it was originally scheduled to launch. Of course, it got scrubbed for weather. So you know, today is one of my days off at the state park, and um, it just worked out perfectly. And of course, you don't need to watch it live. I mean, I recommend if, if it for, helps, though, it for helps. listeners. I mean, it is. It's a. It's like a truly historic um, occasion. So I brought. Our, yeah. I brought Isla and Violet, our two little babies, in, and I was like, "All right, everybody, we're gonna sit down. We're gonna watch this rocket launch." I mean, it was. 
it was like an event here at our house. It was just so triumphant, man. It yeah. Just, Especially like during a, a crazy news cycle right now. Like it's awesome to see something so truly beautiful. Yes. It was like a, a domination of the human spirit. It was amazing. Yeah. So I, I, I am going to talk about it a little bit uh, and why it's historic. I mean, we, the U.S., when I say we, it's definitely not me in there. It's uh, the United States government. Uh, they've been outsourcing their carriage of astronauts um, to Russia, essentially. Uh, and this has been going on uh, since about the time I stopped skydiving. I mean, we're looking at almost a decade of... 2011. No, yeah, yep. And I just love um, anything to do with space travel. And like similar to skydiving, I think it represents the curiosity, the drive of the human species to just see what's possible. I mean, we used to stare at the sky and wonder, you know, what it was like to, what it would be like to fly like a bird. Now we can put on a wingsuit and soar in a wingsuit or, you know, fall in style with very minimal uh, equipment so we can do it again. And at some point during this like slow waking up process of going from being a great ape to something conscious, uh, you know, now we're collaborating. We can build tools. We're this force to be reckoned with, or you know, we're a virus. If you're Agent Smith from the Matrix, call back to <laughs> last episode. But we've gone from staring up at the night sky, wondering, you know, what's out there. <clears throat> to essentially now we're strapping ourselves to missiles and we're going there now. Um, and it's been a, it's been crazy. We, I, it goes back to this dick measuring contest between Soviet Russia and the United States. Of course, the first thing that was launched into orbit was the, uh, Sputnik in the 1950s. And so I think the, the little satellite that could the, the, just the little basketball with, uh, antennae. Curve so, feelers on it. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's a little a little deflating, a little embarrassing that we've been uh, currently sending all of our astronauts to space on a Russian rocket in the uh, Soyuz. Soyuz? How do you say that? That capsule? Yeah, Soyuz. Soyuz? Yeah. Uh, so, it's. Uh, I found on the internet, it's $80 million per seat to send... Americans up pretty steep on the Soyuz. That's pr- really that's, milking us. <laughs> that's uh, that's more expensive than a first class ticket, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so when I saw that we're back on top, baby, we got two Boom. badass Americans. We're back into space. We're doing space stuff. We're on the space station. We got the SpaceX rocket. We're getting our space mojo back. And. It's like NASA knew our recording schedule and did this just for us. It's, it's the content clearinghouse to have an off top that they could discuss and then release two weeks later once it's old news. That's thank one you, of the NASA. We they, really appreciate that. Yeah, scrubbed that launch there so we could really have. I it watched in there. that scrub launch. It was, man, it was like pretty intense because I just kind of caught it randomly on my phone and then I just stopped what I was doing and watched for like thirty minutes right up until they got the scrub call. And it was, man, it was like an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. And so today, you know, I knew it was happening today. So I had set aside time, like specifically to check out all the, uh, all the coverage. 
imagine what it would be like um, for the guys that are actually strapped into the rocket. I was thinking about that. Buckled like, in. I am almost positive that they they must train like you know drop of the hat shutdowns. So it's oh, like yeah. they're that like their their emotions would have to have already been trained out of them. Did you see well, any of the was... images from inside? Oh like, yeah. Like the all glass cockpit, yeah, like touch no screen ports. So it's cool. just like what sci fi has told us, you know, like oh yeah. The spaceships would not have any kind of external windows, like no nowhere where you could have a point of failure. And that's like exactly like the kind of spaceships that we're building now. Yeah. It's so cool. Dude, it it really is. Um, what did you think of their uh, their new space suits that they were wearing? I heard somebody compare them to uh, two thousand one. I mean, they're very like interesting. They're very like sleek and almost like featureless. I don't know. I thought it looked pretty cool. Honestly, yeah, I was. I mean, I super so, into the whole the the whole aesthetic of it. Yeah, I I did too. I mean, they, they look super slim. They look super comfortable, and that's got to be like a pretty, uh, you know, they they must be especially as veteran astronauts, going from like a super bulky flight suit or spacesuit to that thing must be awesome. But um, the New York Times called their suits uh, tuxedos for the Starship Enterprise, <laughs> and then they came out of the <laughs> Tesla Model X, complete with the NASA logos. Um, and they it's pretty uh, dope. I loved it, man. Bob, I'm into ben it for sure. Dog, Doug Hurley. So, uh, something I did want to mention that I thought was kind of interesting. This was also a historic moment in that it was the first time NASA astronauts have taken a car to the launch pad to leave Earth. So the Mercury Seven astronauts rode from the hangar in a modified trailer pulled by a tractor. The Gemini astronauts suited up in a trailer and then rode in a transfer van. The Apollo program introduced the first Astro van. That was a converted motorhome. And Airstream, the company that made the travel trailer that I'm currently living in, they... Sterling Spaceship. That's right, the Sterling Spaceship. So they brought an Astro van into the mix in the 1980s during the space shuttle missions and now Airstream is creating the Astrovan 2, which is a customized uh, touring van, basically. So I guess astronauts, they're all about that hashtag van life. But not these guys. <laughs> these guys were rolling in the Tesla Model X, man. And it looked sweet. That is arriving in style, man. That is so cool. Yeah. So, love that. Oh, dude. I, I loved it. I think Teslas are so cool. So... Uh, did you know that Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley are longtime colleagues and friends? They've both been to space before, and they're also both married to astronauts. They met their wives in like a train astronaut training. Crazy oh, man! Yeah, that's like a couple of families full of geniuses right there. Yeah, like astronauts are like they are like real life superheroes. You know, they're like like uber athletes with genius scientist minds it's like such a such a formidable combination yeah it's it's really cool one of the articles i was i was reading about uh, spacex actually interestingly he uh, tim urban he compared 
astronauts to in the old days when people would want to explore on you know big ships into uncharted territories so you're basically like situation explorers or you're you know you're you're wanting to go into uncharted territories and it's kind of like this this like if you asked a kid in the you know 15th century the 1450s or something what you wanted to be when you grew up they would probably say like they want to be an ocean explorer and now you know i know what i wanted to be when i grew up was an astronaut and I kind of yeah, wonder. There are no more unexplored realms on Earth. You know, it's like we have to go to space to find somewhere that like no human has been. Well, I mean, maybe deep o- deep ocean stuff, but that like you're kind of an astronaut too, and you go down yeah, to. That's true. I mean, it's like a similar level of risk, I imagine. A submarine is like it's it's like a spaceship. It it's really just like is. it's like a pressure resistant spaceship. It really is. So rockets from this Falcon 9 family, they've been launched 88 times, 86 full mission successes. I don't know, you know, 86 out of 88, that's pretty dang good. Yeah, that's amazing. Odd. Seeing that thing come back down and land on that barge, it's like one of the most surreal visions. It breaks my brain every time. Yeah, it's... That like that is amazing precision. You, know, you think about like how hard it is for like a fighter jet pilot to get back onto an aircraft carrier, and you know that's like that's like the height of human piloting. And then the 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 robotic, you know, AI control that they use for these rockets. So like just bring this thing down on this barge in the middle of the ocean. It's just it's like pinpoint precision. It yeah. is like an, an entirely new age of space exploration is, is happening during our lifetime. For sure. <clears throat> and it's, I mean, the fact that that first stage booster, I mean, it's completely reusable. That's kind of the key to SpaceX revolutionizing this this future that we're now entering because they're eliminating those huge costs associated with just throwing everything into the ocean or letting it burn up in the atmosphere after it runs out of and fuel. And that that e effect of just like enshrouding our planet in space junk. Yeah, you know, it's for like sure. Th- that will help with that also so we won't end up becoming like becoming earth-locked because there's no safe window for us to reach escape velocity through. You know, that's going to be like a huge advantage of all, of all these re- uh, reusable systems. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> so I heard... Uh, you had a space fact you wanted to share with me. Is now a good time to <laughs> ask about that? Well, uh, You're very vague I over did text. Find, I did find, I found this on crack.com. So you know this is going to be a good fact because they are <laughs> well researched on crack.com. I mean, they have they have more references than we do here at the Content Clearinghouse. <laughs> but the uh, this is probably the greatest space fact I've ever read. In the 1970s, NASA discovered that space farts do not dissipate because there is no convection in space. So there's no no. rise of heat due to gravity. So the astronaut said that if someone ripped ass in the space station, it would just hang around like, have you seen fire in space, how it just creates like a ball? Yeah, it's it's like like a ball of blue flame. Whoa. It was like that, but with invisible fart gas. And they said that it would just be around for hours. 
Oh my God. Oh man. I think that's the greatest thing I've ever learned about space. We'll link it in the show notes. This so, is uh, uh this is important I th- science. I feel like uh that should be one of our new nicknames. I know we had Troll Knife and Flip Switch, but I think Space Farts is a pretty good hacker name. That could be our team name. Very Space Farts. Space you know, farts. When, when you combine, like if we come together for like some big hacking job, like, oh, you got space farted. Space fart incorporated. So, Dude, I know uh, a few weeks ago that I said that I felt like NASA was conspiring against me when my vomit comet trip oh, yeah. got canceled the last right. minute. But I feel like with this SpaceX launch, they have completely redeemed themselves sending, uh, sending humans into space from America. It's pretty badass. It really is them and SpaceX for sure. Yeah. It's, um, it's definitely an amazing spectacle. Um, Oh, and one last thing, of course, I still love you is not just what I texted you last night, uh, when you were having doubts about our podcasting (laughs) partnership. It, I don't know if you caught that. It was also the name of the unmanned drone ship that received the big rocket. What? It's called. No, of, I, of course, I still love you. The barge. Yeah. Oh man. And that actually, awesome. I didn't see. I didn't see the uh, landing aired. Um, it might have been uh, some kind of technical difficulty. They might have been trying to extend some privacy for the ship and the rocket while they were doing yeah, their thing <laughs> when they were docking. Yeah, it did cut away for just a brief second, and everyone. I'm not as needy as Brett makes me sound, okay? <laughs> Just so you know. Yeah, it did cut away for a second. You know what? Could be fake news. Fake news. Yep, could have been, been a special effect. Well, pretty soon we'll know if, uh, if they made it to the ISS because after they launch that first stage, that second stage drops, they were in low Earth, or, uh, low Earth orbit. And then I guess they do some, they're going to do some like manual flying of the controls. They just want to know what every kind of the, what's involved in a mission like this. So they're going to do, I mean, I think everything can be fully automated. They did an automated test of the crew dragon. It docked by itself, everything, but you know, they're going to take it off autopilot. They're going to mess around with it. They're going to slowly bring it up to the ISS. I think they're going to be in that crew dragon for 19 hours. And they had that. They had that little uh, stuffed animal dinosaur. Did you see that too? No. That they let go. They called it a zero. I did not see that zero G indicator. Oh, I was. I looked away and I heard them mention that. So that was yeah. a colloquialism for the yes. doll they brought with them. Exactly. That's pretty the, awesome. The technical name for the little toy they had floating around on camera. Yeah, it was I, amazing. I up some stats. Oh Can yeah. Hear some stats. Absolutely. Yeah, so I love stats. Just. Also, some cool terms I heard. Uh, they said it um, main engine cut off. They called it Miko. Such an mm. awesome term. Yeah. But uh, they were traveling six thousand meters per second, and then at Seco, second engine cut off, they were traveling at twenty-seven thousand meters per second, and that was their highest G pull at four point five Gs at Seco. And then their wow. their final orbiting speed sixteen thousand miles per yeah. hour, man. Like, I mean, it, do, it doesn't seem are, to it's just like like make sense, really. You know, I mean, it's 
But it's also like speed is one of those things that it's relative to something else in space. So it's like relative totally. to, you know, it's a... The Earth is what it's right. relative. The Earth's rotation. Right, exactly. But, uh, yeah, man. Absolutely unbelievable. I I salute those amazing people. I clap for Elon Musk. I'm... I'm... <laughs> Just flabbergasted that NASA's back in the game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really awesome. And if you Love haven't it, seen it, if you haven't seen the launch, definitely watch the video. We're also going to include a couple of links of just some awesome articles about it. Uh, you can check out our website, cchpod.com. We will also make it available in the show notes. So if you have a podcast app that makes links in the show notes uh, available to you, but Today was a big day. We're in space again, baby. It's great. And if you're listening on Spotify, you may have issues uh, accessing our show notes. But you can go to our website, like Brett said, CCH Pod, and find all of our links. Because we do put a lot into the ancillary material that we link in our show notes. So if you're wondering about any of the stuff that we're talking about and you're on Spotify, just check it out on our website. $80 million so Brett, a what's, pop. Uh, what's new on your content circuit this week? Uh, so I've been reading this book called Buddha's Brain. It's um, it's a neuroscience book, basically. It's kind of a mix of neuroscience and mindfulness meditation. So that's pretty awesome. And oh, and also before I forget, I I feel kind of bad because on one of our previous shows recently, I called the Shark Tank like the best trash, and. Shark Tank is amazing. That is the show that I've been watching a lot lately just to like unwind. I love that show. And I, I, I what I meant to say is that it, there's commercials, there's ads. And I <laughs> that am a, does make it trash. I am a spoiled millennial. And I just like every time there's three minutes of ad between every like 10 minute segment of Shark Tank, I'm just like, this is garbage TV. What, like, what am I doing? But. The show it itself does feel like a, a dying I love format. It. For sure. It does feel like a dying format with all the streaming. But you know what? Honestly, network TV is trash. But Shark Tank, I think I called it trash too, but it's not bad. Have you yeah. seen the episode about the uh, the family with the, the uh, firefighter father who created, it was like the cutting board. I don't know if I've seen, seen that. Seen, a cutting, I've so seen a couple was, firefighters on there with door thing well so he was a uh he was a firefighter and i believe he was in 9-11 and got uh like some sort of first responder related cancer you know from like the dust oh yeah 9-11 dude so and, many I mean, people they had got like that this, it's really bad yeah such a tragedy man. it's crazy and you know they had like a big heartfelt story about how it, the kids presented it on shark tank and then you know it was like this cutting board that had this uh, attachable, like a uh, like a trough that you could like scrape all the uh, the leavens into, or like you could drain liquid from whatever you're cutting into this trough, and it's like a cutting board that's like super easy to clean up. A really amazing product, but it was um, you know it was his kids presenting it, and part of their presentation was you know that they're they lost their mom, and then they lost their dad as well uh, to I believe it was some some sort of illness from nine eleven. Jeez, and then that's terrible. The sharks all came together and they did like a group 
like a group deal for them where they all work together as a team to to basically just like blow up the spot for these for these kids. It was really cool. There's yeah. some good stuff on that show. You I know, would agree with you regardless I just, of what I said before. I I know there's um higher quality content out there. You know, I know as as contentologists or as podcasters who talk about content, we we want to focus on only the best content, but sometimes you just need something that's just kind of fun and easy to digest and it's just a little tasty snack. You know, so I I just had to go back on my on my words because my my content circuit has pretty much been uh, this neuroscience Buddhism book or Shark Tank. So, <laughs> how about I you? I mean, you got to have a little bit of offset. That's right, absolutely. Got to change it up. What yeah, what you been be uh, consuming? Well, I listened to a podcast the other day called Movie Crush, which is uh, Chuck Bryant. He's one half of the Stuff You Should Know duo, which is also a fantastic podcast. But on Movie Crush, he will bring on celebrities or people he works with or his friends, basically people who are in some way connected to the movie industry. They have some sort of like knowledge about how movies are made or they're just, you know, they're, they're very discerning movie goers. And he'll bring them on and have them do their Movie Crush, which is like, their favorite movie and they just talk about whatever they want. And he had a Paul Schneider on and he talked about back to the future. And first of all, I mean like it's no secret that back to the future is just like a beast when it comes to movie making, but it got me thinking about how much I love those movies. So I love back to the future (laughs) in the last day and a half. I have, I watched back to the future one, back to the future two, which God, I man, that movie is so good. It got such a bad rap, Back to the Future 2, but I think it, I'm going to talk about it at some point. I've already started outlining the entire trilogy, but I nice. think Back to the Future 2 is the best one in the series, and then I'm about a third of the way through 3. When I was a kid, I would have given up my right arm for a lightsaber, my left arm for a hoverboard. Dude, the hoverboard is such an ingenious plot device. I love how you can tell by the time you get into number two that the the planning throughout the entire series, it just it just runs so deep. Like there are these threads that they'll plant like in the very first movie that run all the way through until the very end. And then like the hoverboard becomes like its own little device like that. It's like a thread that gets pulled through the movie. There's so many there's so many missions and things that happen in the series that they could have never pulled off without the hoverboard. And I yeah. really love that. It's just and the effects for it, like the where he'll he'll drop it on the ground and he'll just put his back foot in, which something I hate about the hoverboard is if you're a skateboarder, you'll you'll <laughs> recognize that he pushes Mongo, which is like your back foot on the board and you push with your front foot. It's basically just the wrong way to push on a skateboard. It's embarrassing, Marty. But <laughs> the effects are so good. And you can tell sometimes like when he has his back foot hooked in that he's kind of hovering the board just by holding his foot off the ground. But the resistance, it really does look like, you know, like some sort of magnetic resistance against like the earth's polarity or something. It's were they, super were cool they all uh, directed by Steven Spielberg? I'm trying to remember. 
No, they're Robert Zemeckis. Oh, that's right. Uh, Robert Zemeckis. Spielberg um, produced them. That's right. Yeah. Oh, my God. Have you seen uh, Back to the Future 4 yet? <laughs> no, is that a thing? Uh, no. Oh, uh, thank God. Don't ruin Don't I think, ruin it. For, I thought you were going to say it was like they made it in like 2017 with the original cast. I think it's... Like, um, Brett, no, don't Indiana Jones this for me. I think Tenant, uh, Christopher Nolan's Tenant, that's uh, going to be like the first movie to come out in theaters post-coronavirus is going to be Back to the Future 4. I thought Avengers Endgame was Back to the Future 4. It might be, actually. That's a good, <laughs> that's a good point. They even mentioned Back to the Future in that movie. They and they mention how the uh, how the science of Back to the Future Four is or Back to the Future is flawed, and that that's not the way time travel actually works. Yeah, yeah. I didn't understand that part at all, but I laughed like I did in the theater. So, <laughs> oh, oh, smart Hulk. <laughs> uh, well, um, let's take a quick break, and then when we get back, Josh is going to get into some content. The Content Clearinghouse is brought to you by Best Maps Ever. They make checklist posters for outdoor adventurers who want to see it all. If you want to visit every national park in the United States, climb every 14er in Colorado, or ski every slope in New England, Best Maps Ever posters are the perfect way to track and inspire your quest. Every map is lovingly designed with icons marking each location so you can stick a pin in the icon or color it in with a marker as you check off the areas you've been to. They offer mounting and framing services for maps that are ready for pinning right out of the box, or if you prefer to mount the map yourself, there are tips on the website to help you with that. They have a slew of maps relating to protected areas and public lands like state parks, national forests, and even more obscure maps like the National Wild and Scenic Rivers system. So Josh, one of the maps my wife and I have mounted in our camper is the National Parks map. Now, it's covered in pins because, well, you know, Bree and I get around. And Best Maps Ever makes our gallivanting around the country even more fun because we can put a pin in the map to prove that we've been there and done that. No one could ever cheat that system, Brett. Well, it is on the honor system. Best Maps Ever does not employ any sort of pin-related security system that will come to your house and check and see if you've actually visited the places you've pinned. (gasps) Since you brought it up, I have uh, the skydiving drop zone map hanging up in my office. It's one of the few decorations I have that's not celebrating one of my many athletic achievements. In fact, it's hanging up on the wall right next to my world's most humble man trophy. For all your cartographic needs, visit bestmapsever.com. They've got the best maps ever. All right, welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Uh, Josh, we've talked about launching rockets into space. We've talk- talked about skydiving. We've talked about Shark Tank. What on earth? All could the we, normal stuff. What could? What? What is? What is there left to cover? For God's sakes, we've covered it all. Well, you don't know what I'm covering this week, so that's, <laughs> that's really true. cool. It's a surprise. Uh, so let me ask you a question. I'm going to steal. A play from your playbook. <laughs> oh. Ask you a question, Brett. Oh God. Um, and we had discussed previously how we don't want to talk about coronavirus or anything like coronavirus. that. Coronavirus. 
Crotavirus. I was just thinking about that. Uh, Henry Zabrowski, last podcast on the left. Anytime I hear coronavirus, it's all I can hear <laughs> Me now. too. Oh, Me too. We're man. two peas Another in a pod, Josh. We yep. belong together. So... Let me ask you, though, Brett, how do you feel about the COVID contact tracing software that has been, I guess it's past the proposal phase? Huh, this is an interesting question. So um, I want to know more about it before I pass a judgment or share a judgment, but I will um, take a page out of Yuval Noah Harari's book because I Our love most him. Quoted or most mentioned name on the podcast. Um, he released an article uh, th- that was, you know, talking about the pandemic, and he very, very, um, he was very clear that there is a huge concern that during times like this, decisions are made that are fear based, that give up some kind of privacy or liberty that the government kind of implies will be returned at the end of the pandemic, but it never goes away. We just kind of get used to it. So, you know, I think for a really like educated discussion on this or like thought experiment from somebody that knows history and knows the development of technology inside and out. I mean, he makes a very good case that we need to be very, very careful with our civil liberties, especially during times like this. I mean, we have civil unrest. We have, you know, imagine a uh, smartwatch, right? That can measure your, uh, your blood and detect certain kind of viruses or things like that. Maybe it knows if you're pre-diabetic. Maybe it also knows your location. Maybe it also knows, you know, it has all these biometrics. I mean, this isn't far from reality, but say that database now belongs to the government. They have full access to that information, and it starts out with the best of intentions. It starts out, okay, we're just going to be, uh, you know, protecting people. Well, how far... (laughs) can they take that or how do you know where's the oversight so so i don't know this is a long-winded kind of like thinking out loud but i don't know a lot about it but it definitely at first glance scares me uh quite a bit and i'm not really a conspiracy theorist and i am not somebody that thinks like the government should be dismantled i actually am a strong supporter of a lot of social you like programs. Ha- you like having highways? I like highways, schools. I think it would be great if we had universal health care. I think it's insane that we don't. But, you know, there are obviously um, very problematic things that can happen when you have a government that has too much information. And I, I think that it's a slippery slope when you start allowing, you know, even, or, and I guess with these apps, they're private companies, right? It wouldn't even be the government. It would be Google. So that's a whole different set of concerns where, you know, we've already, we, we pretend like privacy is of our utmost, you know, concern, but then we give all of our information to Facebook and that information is used against us and we are manipulated during elections or for advertisers. So yeah, this is a, this is a serious issue. <laughs> well, for an unscripted and 
very long-winded and rambling <laughs> response, Brett. You really hit the nail on the head of what I was going for. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, a lot has been said about when we give up freedoms to the government or to private industry that we never get them back. So, I mean, like this, the the Patriot Act 2001 is a great reference point and example of this happening. You know, the government's ability to track and monitor the digital footprint of people it came from that time period. And as you know, like those aren't freedoms that we'll be getting back anytime soon. And the preface of the book that I'm going to be discussing today, it's all about the erosion of personal freedom under the guise of the government protecting us. And that preface is very prescient at the time of reading, you know, now when we have things like the, the COVID tracking apps on the horizon and the interesting thing about the preface is that it really doesn't have anything to do with this book. It's more of like just the thoughts from this author uh, on where he thinks the government's surveillance state is going. So the book that I am talking about today is called The Terminal List by Jack Carr's 2018 uh, fiction book. Okay. I thought you were going to say 1984, actually. No, the uh, that I mean that that's what I'm saying is this preface doesn't have anything to do with this story. But Jack Carr is an ex Navy SEAL, and if you've read any military nonfiction in your day, then you probably know that military or that Navy SEALs are pretty fantastic writers. And when someone who has his background is writing something about the government taking the freedom of the people to me that's really scary because i i feel like you know who would know better than this guy like this guy is trained not just as a soldier but like as a surveillance expert and he's trained you know in in clandestine war techniques it's just like this guy is already kind of thinking in this headspace and the preface of this book like it, it's pretty scary I know personally I'm not going to be downloading a COVID contact tracing app. I mean, I I assume that the government already has enough ways to trace me. Dude, I, um, this is very different, but I downloaded, I was in Hong Kong or maybe I was in, um, South Korea reading like this, I don't know. It was like a Hong Kong newspaper and they had this, uh, it was this fascinating long article, about this trend of photo editing that happens in Asia with social media. So there's this like unwritten rule that if you're going to take a picture or a selfie with your friends, I mean here, you know, there's obviously Instagram filters. There's obviously like people that Photoshop or touch up their photos and there's like, you know, the no makeup thing. And so like, it's, it's a little bit of a thing here for sure. But over there, they in Asia they they will take in some Asian countries they will take like hundreds of photos sometimes and then they will spend hours going through them finding the best one touching it up and there I don't remember the name of this app but there was this app where you can um and it's it, it was also talking about the interesting like uh trends on how there was like this this trend towards making yourself look more Caucasian. Like that was an attractive quality or they would like, you know, so their skin would lighten up or they'd like make their eyes bigger too. Right. But 
so I downloaded this app because I just thought it was fascinating. And I remember showing Bree like I would, you know, you could like, it was, it was incredible technology. I mean, you could change the shape of your eyes. You could like move your cheeks in a little bit and it just auto recognize, like use some kind of amazing facial recognition algorithm. And you could just like do these crazy little tweaks uh, you know, it had hundreds of different parameters you could change at the click of the button, and you never had to select any like spots on your face and to do this or that. Well, uh, I don't remember when I found out, but shortly after, I found out that that was like a Chinese company that was like tracking people's phones. And so, of course, I deleted it right away. But who know? I mean, I know iPhones are really good about. Um, you know, their firewalls, their protections or whatever security nonsense. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I know iPhones are like not hackable, but if you download it's an app, also adding to like the facial recognition capabilities of whatever database it's feeding into. Right. For sure. And China is like, they, they, I'm sure we have some crazy, like mass surveillance going on. I mean, Edward Snowden talked about this, you know, like he had like legit information about the crazy shit that goes on here. But dude, I I'm sure China takes the cake with mass surveillance. I mean, they've been in the game a long time and I can't imagine what kind of technology they have, but sounds like Jack Carr has uh, tried to imagine what, <laughs> what's going on. Yeah. So, you know, his, his, idea of like of the government doesn't seem as pure as what you would expect from someone who spent their life in the military which to me that idea is very very scary because you know like that's that was his life and that was his his employer for years but once you get past the synopsis uh or once you get past the preface the synopsis of this story is uh and very minor spoilers it's about a Navy SEAL named James Reese who is betrayed by his command and he goes on a mission of personal vengeance to punish those responsible. And that's kind of the framing of this story. It's, uh, I mean, I was one chapter in and I pretty much started outlining it immediately. You know, like when you start reading a book and you can just tell from the first couple of pages that the pacing and the economy of words that I love so much, it's just something that like clicks with your psyche like that's how this book was like immediately. So it's not super I mean, like, long then. Yeah, I mean it's uh I mean it's it's maybe 350 pages, but it just it just clips, you know. It's like there's yeah. there's nothing I always feel like those, in this book. Those like uh government military I don't know that those thrillers are always like super long, you know. <laughs> kind of like a Tom Clancy. It's definitely not right, a Tom exactly. Clancy. Right, exactly. Okay, gotcha. Let me ask you one more one more uh question. Yes. Have you ever heard, in the context of uh, military application, have you ever heard of a security round? A security round? Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard of that, no. All right, just put a pin in that. We'll come back to it. It's uh, Okay. It's pretty good. I'd never <laughs> heard of it either, but uh, this book taught me all about it. So, uh, like, I love military fiction and nonfiction, and this book feels like it straddles the line between the two, like the training, the techniques, the strategy. They all kind of have the feel of a nonfiction book, but the intense story is decidedly fiction. At least I would hope so. Th- this book really appealed to all of my sensibilities. And I heard of it 
uh, through a Joe Rogan interview with Jack Carr. And his story about writing this book was really interesting. So he said that he had no agent when he first started trying to shop this book around. And he said that that actually helped him because he feels like an agent would have kind of like tried to poke and prod and change the story. And he feels like, you know, the the power of how the story turned out, like it's very raw and real was one of its major selling points. But he, uh, he was a big fan of Brad Thor who writes the Scott Harvard series, which is another like ex Navy seal spy action thriller. I haven't read any Brad Thor, but this does sound right up my alley. But he said that uh, he got in contact with Brad Thor and asked him a few questions and Brad kind of like pointed him in the right direction. Old Brad, I'm on a first name basis with him. But uh, he pointed him in the right direction and said that when he was ready to shop his book around that Brad Thor would show it to his publisher. So he kind of already had an in and he said when he was writing the terminal list, he also had Chris Pratt in mind. So as he's writing James Reese, he's kind of like picturing Chris Pratt. Uh, and, Parks uh, and Rec Chris Pratt or Jurassic World Chris Pratt? <laughs> well, this was Parks and Rec period Chris Pratt before Chris Pratt had become like an action superstar, really? which was really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting because you know, he, during Parks and Rec, he was not the hunk of a man that he is no. now. No, so... Uh, Plays the like lame boyfriend in a shit band kind of the lovable golden retriever type exactly but yeah. i think he just you know it seems like jack carr just knew chris pratt was awesome or he could be awesome so um as he was refining the book based on the recommendations of brad thor he like set the book in the proper typeface and spacing based on what brad thor said his publisher liked and so um uh, when he presented it, it was kind of like in this this very palatable package to the the first people that were looking at it. Uh, he said a lot of a lot of times a publisher like won't even get past the first page, but he really kind of like manipulated the system to make sure that when they opened it, it was very you know pleasing to their eye. And now this story is becoming a series in pre production on Amazon with Chris Pratt as the star. That's really so. Cool. This guy is like a true universe builder. You know, he's like he is shaping the world to his whim. It's just that's that's so inspirational. That's really uh, cool. And if you listen to the content clearinghouse, you'll know about the book before the movie with Chris Pratt comes out, and then you can just be cool and hipster and say that you knew about this before anyone else did. Exactly. Maybe that, I think maybe that's not a good uh, selling point. <laughs> no. That's good, but I think that uh, here, you know, 50 minutes in, we've probably already got him on the hook. Yeah. Uh, so Carr does, in this book, he does a great job of peppering in these life, uh, life layer details about the military. There are things like like the Special Ops Forces, their idea of the uh, NCIS, which is the Naval Criminal Investigative Service. It's a civilian branch of investigators that uh, James Reese says... They weren't cut out to be in the FBI. They didn't have the balls to be real beat cops, so they spent their careers investigating 18-year-old Navy men who popped a monthly drug test. Like It seems like details like that in this book, it's things like a, a non-veteran never could have written. Like Those things are just so specific in this book, and the whole book is you know, f- full of these little details that 
it, it really makes it feel like you're you're living in James Reese's world. And I feel like a lot of these things are also uh these are like details that Jack Carr picked up from his time in the military and he's just kind of like spilling all of like his annoyances of the uh you know the 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 mundanity of military life onto the page. It all makes it feel like very believable, very lived in. I can't imagine and, like uh, a military uh, fiction really being that good for somebody that has never been in the military. I don't know. I mean, there. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of things like that where you know there's. It's hard to. It's like having maybe a female character as the protagonist, and you're not a female, and you're trying to write about you know, something that would pertain only to a girl. So do do you, do you feel like this is the kind of like a military fiction book? Is that, is that the kind of reading that appeals to you? Or do you feel like if you recommend it, that part of life? I mean, I, it's not a a genre that I'm usually drawn to as much as like uh, nonfiction or psychology or science fiction or some fantasy, but like, uh, if you recommend it, I'm going to check it out. And, you know, my dad was in the navies. I do have like a fascination with the military, but I also feel like I have a disconnect, like you said, because I never had that experience. Um, and I feel like it, it would make a lot more sense or maybe even like entertain you more um, if you had that perspective. But I mean, if it's, if it's, like something exploring the philosophy of like a totalitarian government or, you know, something along those lines that that's going to speak to me, whether I've, I've been in the military or not. Yeah. I think that you and I, we do read for very different reasons. Like most of my reading is like an escape or like to, to go on like, you know, an adventure of some sort. And I've been into military, fiction and nonfiction forever. Like I grew up reading Tom Clancy and I really love kind of like, like action spy thriller. So this, you know, this book, it falls like right into that vein. And, uh, you know, it's, it just moves so fast. It's such a smooth plotted story. There are no unnecessary divergences from the plot. Like when the story does shift gears, it's always with a purpose. And within two, three pages, the connections to the A storyline are made clear. Like I really dislike it in a story when some interesting thread is interrupted, like for an interlude of either like character development or to tease something up way down the line. You know, it's the my favorite stories really fall into, you know, this category of like moving quickly, every word on the page means something, and that's like you know, that that's this book all the way through. And I really love stories about you know, like training and planning and gearing up, things like that. Like a a large part of this story is James Reese's thought process and mental state as he preps for this mission that he's imposed upon himself. There's like these these long detailed sections about surveillance and counter-surveillance, tradecraft, like reconning a target. There's one particular shooting scene that's so detailed and specific the wording that he uses makes the scene seem like uh, seem like it takes place in slow motion. It describes him like recognizing the threat, his body motions as he draws his weapon. He rotates his body to present less of a target. 
hearing the assailant shots but not rec- uh, registering pain, so proceeding under the assumption that he's not hit, extending his arms into a shooting stance, and then the firing on autopilot as his gun sight finds his target. Uh, it's it's like a, a process of observe, orient, decide, and act. It's just all so decisive, and it really makes you feel the thought process, and you can imagine the blur emotion that an outside observer would experience, but from his point of view, it it seems like what it would be like to be in the mind of John Wick. Everything moves in like this, this almost like surreal speed from uh, the protagonist's point of view. Damn, that sounds awesome. I, I'm definitely going to give this book a read for sure. So what? Really so cool. can you talk about what in the plot talks about this mass surveillance or why you kind of prefaced things with that? Or I'm curious. I mean, I you know, I don't want you to get too heavy into spoiler territory, but obviously that well, plays story, a role in this story. Yeah, the story has a strong, like, anti-conspiracy, anti-governmental secret slant. Like, uh, as mentioned in the foreword, you know, Jack Carr is concerned with citizens giving up personal freedoms in exchange for security. And many of the themes in the story reflect the views of a government not having the common man's best interest in mind. Uh, With all the research that goes into his explanation of tactics, gear, and training, you know, it, it certainly makes me think that the conspiracies like the one that happened in this story are based around things that could actually exist. And I don't want to go too deep into spoilers. You know, like those, the story isn't necessarily about mass surveillance, but it does come into play. uh, And especially like the loss of personal freedom and the government not having your interest in mind. That's like a, that's a big selling point, a big part of what drives the story here. It, it seems very clear to me that the government does not have people's best interests in mind. They, there's probably a very small, select group of people whose interests, you know, it, I mean, it, it seems like uh, that is an illusion to have some control or some enforcement. I don't know. Maybe I'm just feeling a little disenfranchised with things at the moment, but uh, you know that that argument about this security versus you know it's like okay do you want to be safe or do you want to have privacy that dualistic type of thinking or that like on off binary way of viewing things I don't I, I I'm tr- I want to know more about that argument because I think we can have privacy and security I don't think we have to give up you know, all of our Gmail passwords and uh, everything we've bought and sold on Amazon, you know, to have some reasonable level of safety from like a terrorist threat. I don't know. I just think there's a lot of theater involved in that or a lot of like planning of like, okay, there's going to be this argument that if you want to be safe, you got to give up your privacy. It, that to me, it seems very first, black and white. It does, and I just don't. Yeah. I just don't think that that is the case. That is just, you know, if you frame the argument that way, then you're already forcing people to pick a side, and of course, people are going to pick the side of safety or the side of security. And that argument, I mean, this this is a very current, a very relevant debate because 
the government is always like with with Apple. They have the FBI has tried to get a backdoor into Apple's encryption. They're yeah, double they won't let or, them do it. No, and it's. I mean, I think now they might be passing something during, during coronavirus, but it's probably buried under all the news. So I mean, it, it's it's very relevant, and you know, it, it one of Apple's points I think is not just like okay, the government shouldn't have a backdoor through this encryption, but it's that if there's any backdoor in end-to-end encryption, people will find it. Like, the bad people will find it. that compromises the whole thing. It compromises the whole thing. There's no point anymore. So, I mean, it's, it's very interesting times. And, you know, you and I have talked a lot about artificial intelligence, too. And, uh, there's, I guess, this new experiment proved the, um possibility of quantum computing maybe i don't know i don't it's something i kind of saw and didn't understand but i i guess if you had a really really good ai algorithm or if quantum computing is legit if it can happen end-to-end encryption is done it can be cracked so we might not be uh living in a world one day with privacy we're living in the era of the erosion of privacy. Yeah. Oh, that's a great way to put it. I think you're I think you're absolutely right. So, um something I wanted to talk about with this book in particular was the framing and context that violence is presented in. Like I've realized watching action movies versus like thriller or horror movies is how much the context and framing determines the audience's reaction to what they're seeing or reading. Like a a shooting in an action movie can seem exhilarating and exciting and make you cheer as like some faceless bad guy is gunned down in some creative way by our protagonist. Or when that same act is like frailed under a veil of terror from the victim's POV or a character's motivations whose hopes and fears you've come to understand, suddenly a shooting can seem like this terrible loss with horrifying consequences it's certainly like a trick the author can play on us, the audience. And this book really toys with these different framing devices. Like there's one bit of story that has, you know, an action movie feel and you cheer as Reese applies like the tools of his trade as he protects himself or kills people from a distance with some cleverly set up hit. And then there are other times when you almost like recoil in horror as you get a glimpse into the mind of like one of his very deserving victims. Like there's a, there's a scene and again, minor spoiler alert, but um, there's a scene where he's extracting information in this long protract protracted sequence. And the victim gets a glimpse of him from, from behind their blindfold. The victim notices that Reese is wearing surgical scrubs and paper booties, gloves and surgical masks. And he puts it all together that uh, Reese is kitted out like this. So because he doesn't want to leave any evidence of whatever he's about to do and the victim realizes that he's not going to survive this encounter. And suddenly, the entire feeling shifts from kind of like badass action movie into like very serious horror territory. And it's all about like framing and context. context. And that's something that I've kind of thought about it. I was never really able to put my finger on why something like extraction on netflix fantastic action movie that's one of your uh, netflix action 
trilogy movies, right? That it is. <laughs> well, that's that's one of the two. I'm still trying to round the trilogy out, but like, give why it to me again. It was Extraction and Triple Frontier. Triple Frontier. That's right. But like, why that action seems just like so like yeah, this is so badass. And then if you watch a movie that's like about a school shooting, which is, you know, if you were to take the faces out of it, it's almost the exact same act. And you're just like, this is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. Right. You know, like this book really put it into, into perspective about how much the framing matters. Like that's a, it's, it's like a, a sign of really good writing. And it's cool that it helped me kind of focus that. Like as oh, the, I love that. As yeah. the book progresses, even though you know that Reese's actions are justified, the horror of it becomes a lot harder to stand behind. You know, it's what he's doing is the kind of retribution that you imagine that you'd want in a scenario like this. But Jack Carr is so good at making you face the reality of what it is uh, that you realize you have to be a very particular type of person to go through with what he does. It really speaks to the writing. You know, it's hard to feel conflicted about the protagonist in a story, especially when you're you are rooting for him. But again, that's like such a, a sign of great writing. Wow. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I, I've I like always love um I don't know, there was definitely the wave of like anti heroes, you know, you had uh breaking bad, you had um uh, what was the movie about this or the TV show about the serial killer that was only taking Dexter. out the bad guy? Dexter, of course. So uh, there's definitely been, you know, a wave of that. And I love like ambiguity. I love like, you know, exploring that idea. So it sounds, it sounds like it's done extremely effectively. And I seriously cannot wait to read this book. Like in this book, James Reese is decidedly a hero. He is not an anti-hero, but you know, it also kind of like puts into per- the perspective, the horrors of war, because you know, when you see, even if you're watching combat footage, like real combat footage, it's still sort of sanitized because you know, like the gunfire is kind of muted because it's shot through a, through a GoPro or, you know, you, most of the violence may be happening off screen and you're just kind of getting like the, the like the side eye glimpse of what's happening you know you're not really seeing like people getting their heads blown off but when you really get down like to the nitty gritty of what's happening in the dirt that's what's happening man like you know people's like intestines are hanging out it's like all this horrifying stuff that if you like if you shot this you know in a dark room with like some really intense key lighting and you put like a theremin score behind it, you know, like this is like, it's like hostile stuff, but it's what's happening every single day. And it's just the, you know, the horror of this violence that humans can bring down upon each other is just, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to face sometimes, even though it's so fun to do this stuff in a video game or read like this badass book, like the terminal list about this stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's like, g- good to, uh, I don't know. Like I, I also enjoy action movies and sometimes like yeah, the best violence being depicted, you know, in, in, in those formats can be very entertaining. And I am not somebody that thinks, you know, video games 
cause school shooters or, you know, um, rock music caused this kind of rampage. I, I, I'm not somebody you have that, a logical brain. Yeah. I mean, but you know, there, you, there is that argument though. And I think it's mostly unsubstantiated for sure. But I think that they're also at the, on the flip side of things, there's probably some desensitization that happens or at least, you know, um, I don't know. I, I'm not somebody that gets like, I don't think I, in real life, if I were to witness violence, I don't think all the action movies I've seen would desensitize me to that. But I do think it's important that we have content that sometimes says like, look, this is, you know, this could be real. This is, this is heavy. This is serious. This is life and death. And so it it can, even in, even in a fictional world, it can take you out of that. I don't know, like just escapism into the realm more of like reality and facing that darkness. I mean, this kind of reminds me of like a mindfulness activity. So, um, my silent retreat I did for my mindfulness based stress reduction. One of the things that, uh, in mindfulness, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's a Buddhist thing or that's just the roots of it. My class was totally secular. There was no really religious, um, it's, it's just kind of based on the scientific principles that come out of Buddhism. But one of the practices that's very common is mindful eating. And before you just like mindlessly and quickly consume you, your food, you really look at it and you really smell it. You take it in. You try to imagine all the people that had to get involved to bring that food to your plate. Or you imagine if it's an animal, you think that animal for giving its life, you know? And, and so it, it makes it a little more difficult for me to eat meat because I do imagine like, Oh my God, this isn't just like a slice of Turkey. Like this was a bird. This was a living thing that is now on my plate that I'm, I'm consuming. So I don't, I kind of like those mindfulness kind of exercises where you're forced to look at the reality of a situation, even if it's really dark and even if it is kind of like a horror movie. Yeah. I didn't expect this book, which is, you know, like it kind of falls into the vein of like Tom Clancy to make me think this much about, you know, the human relationship with violence. It, it was really a surprise reading this because, you know, if, if you saw it like on the, on the shelf at like the airport, you'd be like, Oh, this is just kind of like a breezy, like, best bestseller action book but i really feel like it's more than that because it's written so well and there's really nothing no better way to follow up a discussion about mindfulness and buddhism than uh with the talking about the security round that i brought up earlier this was a term that i had never heard before i'm surprised Uh, i heard of the concept but never the term security round but in the terminal list Reese, he calls it a security round when he's like, you know, he might have like shot somebody like in the leg or in the stomach or something. And as he walks by, he just like casually like puts a round into their forehead or something to finish him off. And it's just like such a a clinical term for executing someone who's down and no longer a threat, but it's just put a security round in and make sure they don't get back up again. It's like these little details. It seems like such a real thing, you know, and I, I can imagine in their training, you know, like 
Don't forget to put security around on those guys that you that you put down. <laughs> it makes it so disturbing feeling to me. In Zombieland, that's called the double tap. The double tap, that's right. Yeah. So Carr said that he submitted this book to the Navy for review and they checked for, you know, any redactable material pertaining to tactics, equipment, and strategy. Um, I can only imagine after reading this book that someone in the chain of command had to have had the thought that they were glad that they had never betrayed Jack Carr because his imagination for revenge is extremely creative. And there's actually quite a bit of redacted material in the book when referring to some special project at Fort Bragg and also a few locations. So apparently oh, the location the military... of the uh, first wind tunnel, I believe. Oh, right? yes. Pigeon that's, Forge. Sure that's what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, wait, Pigeon Forge you know, is actually, in Tennessee. I think there's a Fort Bragg military. does have their own. Yeah. yeah. They have their own wind tunnel, which, oh, man, that's a dream tunnel to hit one day. <laughs> but uh, apparently the military actually did remove some material, and yeah, I've never seen that in a fiction book before. So it really, you know, it's made me, like through context clues, try to figure out what he's talking about. And it's all pretty, uh, it's all pretty foreign to me, but it's, it's interesting when you're reading this book and you come across in the Kindle version, just a bunch of X's where something he had written, they were like, nope, you got to take that out. And then, uh, you know, with, Something he mentioned, I believe in the Joe Rogan interview, was the reason he was so adamant about submitting this to the DOD was because of the book No Easy Days by Mark Owens. Uh, it's actually by Mark Bissonette. That's his, uh, that's his name. Mark Owens was his pen name. But it was this very controversial book written by a Navy SEAL about the mission that took out Osama bin Laden. And I've read this book. I mean, it is really awesome it's kind of it's one of the books that got me interested in military nonfiction, but it really blew the lid off of the idea of special operators discussing their work in the military and uh i got this from an article on the hollywood reporter it said that uh mark bisonette who wrote the book uh he had to pay the government more than 6.6 million dollars for violating non-disclosure agreements and publishing without getting the document cleared by the DOD. And that was according to federal court documents. So I'm sure that particular incident, you know, really played a part in him submitting and making sure that even though he's writing fiction, that he's not like violating any kind of operational protocol or anything that, you know, he's obligated to protect as, you know, a former military man and also having, you know, like brothers in arms that are still in the military. Man, that's crazy. $6.6 million. <laughs> like, they don't get enough out of uh, the taxes that exactly. we all... <laughs> so I really only have one real issue with this book. Towards the end, there is a bit of exposition dump. It's like, it's very 80s action movie. But since the majority of the book is so well-crafted, it almost kind of makes me think that Carr may have may have done this on purpose, like as a bit of an homage to the genre. You know, the, the book really tackles some extreme scenarios, you know, government betrayal, homegrown terrorism. Uh, it's it's really justifying the inspiration for these kind of actions, like these brutal acts of violence. So the fact that, you know, some of it, uh, some of the points 
you're rooting for Reese at the same time you're almost condemning him, his actions. It really speaks to how well-crafted the story is. So I feel like that exposition dump may have been Jack Carr, you know, kind of saying like, yep, this is also inspired by 80s action and this is like a standard way that a third act would close. Hmm. So what's like an example of like a 1980s action movie that you that I don't know that was brought to mind by this. Oh, it's like a like RoboCop where oh, gotcha. you know, the okay. end where he goes into like Dick Jones's office and right, instead of like having some giant sequence of events out the window and Yeah, but like Dick Jones like he just kind of lays out like here are all the plot points that you may have missed throughout the story and this is why I'm the bad guy. Gotcha. You know, that's like that's kind of like what the uh you know the penultimate scene in this book. Right. It, well, it has know, a little I, bit of exposition dump like that. I kind of like that because sometimes, like I, I don't know. I mean, I realize that like having some ambiguity or some vagueness at the end is a very effective. I don't know. It, it, it just for me personally, I like having things like explained and laid out. Because yeah, I'm a little bit of an idiot sometimes. I like yeah, to I like to exactly. de- make sure I have all the details. You get it, but it's <laughs> it's definitely like a choice though as a writer. You know, right? You can either craft scenarios where context clues are giving you this information, or at the end you could have the guy like standing there and tell you why he's the bad guy and make it very obvious that you shouldn't feel guilty when you throw him out the window. Right. Right. You know, sometimes when you're reading a book and uh, it kind of makes you want to read over all other forms of entertainment, I think that reading is probably, it's a, it's a bigger investment than, you know, sitting down and watching a movie. Like you really, you really like flexing your imagination to paint the pictures of, you know, that the author is trying to get across to you. Like you're creating a lot of that in your mind. So sure. Yeah. Reading is a little bit more of an investment than, you know, just watching something. But when I find a book that makes me want to shut off all my other screens and read it over watching or playing something, and that's when I know that like I'm really onto something with a series. And that's what this book did for me. I really can't think of a more glowing endorsement than a book making me want to read it over playing a video game. <laughs> I've already started on book two. After that, I've got uh, book two is True Believer. After that, I got book three in the in the queue. Uh, that book three is The Savage Son. So my content circuit is kind of filling out for the next few weeks. For me, there is comfort in knowing that uh, the next few weeks of reading are kind of already taken care of. So with that in mind, I would highly recommend Jack Carr's The Terminal List to anyone that's into military fiction military nonfiction, reading in general or security rounds dang double tap well you Bam. double tapped uh, the shit out of that content piece <laughs> double tap my heart brett i <laughs> what was that uh, name of that drone ship of course i still love you josh uh the <laughs> oh, terminal list brett. i cannot wait to check that out jack Carr. that sounds freaking amazing and i love when something can uh i don't know really make me think in today's age because i do think uh privacy if that does 
and it sounds like it does play a big part in this book. It's uh, something that we're all dealing with right now, and we should all be maybe thinking about a little more than we are. Well, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, rate it, review it. We're just starting out, so uh, tell your friends about it, because new listeners definitely help us out growing Please the content share. clearinghouse. Also, we're on Instagram and Facebook at the content clearinghouse. Enjoy your day. We're very grateful you're listening to Josh and I talk about content and other stuff too. See you next time.